Good morning. All right, so our preaching series uh, through the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, drops us into the book of Joshua this morning. Um, As we've just had it read to us, we're going to be looking at the very familiar story of the conquest of the city of Jericho. And this is one of those stories from the Old Testament that um, almost everyone in the modern world, regardless of their level of um, familiarity with the Bible, has some awareness. It's just one of those types of stories. Um, And like many of those types of stories, like the David and Goliath story and Noah's Ark and things like that, um, they've often been reduced uh, to a fable with some sort of a moral for us to take away. Um, or they've been simply allegorized. But oftentimes these stories are not really fully understood. And so um, in this case, I would say in order to rightly understand this account, we need to actually start by going back to the beginning of the book of Joshua where we will find what I uh, would suggest is the interpretive key uh, for all of the events that are recorded in the book of Joshua. And so, contextually speaking, the book opens um, with the people of Israel standing on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, and they're looking across into Canaan, into the Promised Land, and this fortress, the city of Jericho, uh, is looming in the distance. And the first verse of Joshua reminds us that Moses has just died. And now this is incredibly significant because Moses... Uh, had been this larger-than-life leader to Israel um, as he led them out of uh, Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea to Sinai where they were established as God's covenant people. And throughout all of this and throughout the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses had been this man who had very special access to God that nobody else had. All right, and 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 now... Now that they're standing on the, the brink of what is potentially the scariest part of their whole journey, since, certainly since the Red Sea, um, and remember, uh, when they had been at this place before, 40 years prior, Moses had sent spies into the land of Canaan to see what they were up against. And those spies came back, and it's recorded in Numbers 13 what they said. They came back and reported to the people that the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and large. And they go on and they say, it is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. And so all that Israel seems to know about this land that they are now supposed to go over and take possession of is that it's filled with these massive fortified cities protected by these um, super warrior giants who could just squash them like bugs. And so the odds don't look real good from their perspective. And now Moses' replacement, Joshua, somehow has to rally these people up and lead them forward in this campaign to possess the land. Now, Joshua obviously was extremely worried about having to do this. And um, so the book opens with God coming to him 
and confirming a number of the promises that he had made to Moses now to Joshua. Um, in verse 5, God says to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will, never, I will not leave you or forsake you, God says to him. And then he tells Joshua to remember all the things that Moses had taught him while he had apprenticed under him, um, to keep the law that Moses had shared with him, not to turn from it to the right or to the left, never let it depart from your mouth. He says, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then this command to obey and to keep the law is then um, bookended again on the other side by one of the most beautiful promises in Scripture from Joshua 1 verse 9, uh, where God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All right, and so with that in mind, we will now jump into our text from today. And um, I want to draw three things out from the text today, and I'll just tell you right up front what they are. The first is that God is on the scene. He is present with his people in power. All right, second is that God is for God. He is carrying out his plans and his purposes for his glory. And then the third one is that God's victory belongs to his people through faith. Those who are aligned with him in faith and obedience share in the benefits of his guaranteed victory. All right, so those are the three things we're going to look at. All right, so Israel has just crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, finally. And they have uh, eaten their first meal of the fruit of the land. And they have begun to celebrate their first Passover ceremony in the new land, in their new home. And apparently Joshua has wandered off on his own when he encounters a man um, who he perceives as a man. Uh, dressed as a warrior and holding a sword. And Joshua asks him a very logical question. He asks, are you on our side or on the side of our enemies? And the warrior replies, neither. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And now Joshua seems to understand that this Warrior is a manifestation of God's own presence because he immediately bows down and begins to worship him, which is something that Joshua certainly would not have done. He has just been reminded to keep and observe all the laws of God. Um, and, and the first two of which are, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not worship other gods. And so Joshua certainly wouldn't have worshipped him if he didn't believe that this warrior was the representation of God himself. But to make it even clearer, the commander of the Lord's army uh, tells Joshua to remove his sandals because the place where you are standing is holy. And just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Paul preached to us about the call of Moses at the burning bush in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And those of us who were there for that sermon... Uh, should be thinking this, this is a very familiar sounding language because there in Exodus 3, God said to Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
And the ground in both cases is not holy because of where it is, but it's holy because of who is there. And so God himself is present. He is on the scene with Joshua here. And this is Joshua's confirmation of what God had already told him back in chapter 1, that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this is no less true uh, for God's people today than it was for Joshua that morning. Uh, In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes from these promises from the first chapter of Joshua to encourage his Christian audience to stand firm in their faith in the face of terrifying trials. And he goes on to quote from Psalm 118 as well. And he says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Jesus himself, when he was about to ascend into heaven, um, his disciples were feeling uh, scared or frightened at the prospect of having to carry on his ministry without him. And Jesus says to them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so no matter how scared we are, no matter how distant God feels in our specific trials and struggles, the fact remains that God has promised all over Scripture that he is always with us. And so we can have full confidence that this is the case. But God is not merely present. Right? He doesn't simply come, in our text here this morning, he doesn't simply come to observe the events that are going to take place, nor does he simply come to give Joshua some advice on what to do, but rather, uh, he comes as the Lord of hosts. He comes dressed for battle with his sword drawn. So God comes in power. He comes ready for action. And look at what he says next to Joshua. This is uh, 6 verse 2 at this point. And the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. God is saying to Joshua, in effect, I know you're scared. I know things look really bleak right now. I know that victory seems highly unlikely in your eyes. But here's what's actually true in this moment. I have already won the battle and I'm giving it to you. He's speaking in the perfect tense. He's saying it is already finished. It has already been accomplished. And so this brings us back to the answer that the commander of the Lord's army had given to Joshua to his question about uh, whether he was for us or for our enemies. And he responded, neither. Right? And this is the second point that I wanted to make this morning. God is for God. God is sovereign over all things. And it's his plans and his purposes that he is carrying out for his glory, not for ours. And this is the point in the story, I think, where oftentimes people rush too quickly to identify and and say, you know, this is about me. And so here's what this doesn't mean. If tomorrow I were to get a terminal diagnosis, 
you know, I can't go to this text and say, look, God promises victory over um, whatever the enemies are that are in my life, as long as I have enough faith. That's not the case at all. If I were to get a terminal diagnosis tomorrow, I would absolutely pray for healing, and I would pray to have more time with my family, um, and I would pray that that would be God's will, but ultimately, I couldn't go to this text and say, God owes this to me. That would be a great mistake. See, the reason why God answered Joshua the way that he did is because Joshua had asked the wrong question. The question isn't whether or not God is for us and for our plans. The question rather is whether or not we are with him and whether we are for his plans and for his glory. See, the reason why God promises victory uh, over Jericho to Joshua in this particular instance is because that was God's plan, not Joshua's plan. You know, this is the Lord of hosts speaking. It's the Lord of the heavenly armies. And as we sang this morning, oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts, right? And so what does it look like in this particular situation? Um, we see uh, right away in verse 3 that without pausing or skipping a beat, uh, God, uh, after saying that he's giving Jericho into their hands, he gives Joshua a list of marching orders, right? So the promise comes with instructions. And those instructions in this case are a battle plan, though they don't look like any battle plan I've ever seen before. Uh, verses 3 to 5 uh, outline the specifics of what they are supposed to do. And I can summarize, for, summarize it for you in this particular case. What they're going to do is have a week-long walkathon around the city, and then they're going to yell at it, and it's going to crumble. So what is actually going on here? Um, and then we obviously get a more detailed description of their formation in the following verses, and particularly in verse 9, where we learn that there's supposed to be a group of armed men in the front, then there's going to be priests blowing trumpets and carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's going to be another group of armed men in the back. And the point of all this is that God is at the center of this procession. And verse 11 describes what is actually being accomplished here. And uh, verse, six, verse, 11, six, verse 11 says, So he, this is Joshua, So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city. All of this was really about the symbol of God's presence surrounding the city. The Israelite soldiers were merely accessories to this goal. And he commands his people to participate, but the battle is his, and it's not going to be won by feats of human strength or ingenuity. And now imagine how insane this would have looked to the people of Jericho as they're in their city or they're up on their walls and they're looking down and these people are just walking in circles around their city. Um, you know, they had dug in for a siege. 6 verse 1 talks about how they had shut up the city. They bolted everything up. Like, they were prepared. 
for a siege, a good old-fashioned siege. And Israel doesn't roll up with battering rams and catapults and siege towers. No, they come walking over with a gold-plated box and some trumpets. And isn't this often the way that God works? The Lord has a way of accomplishing his purposes in the most unlikely manner imaginable. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And the point of everything that's going on here in our text right now is that when the walls of Jericho finally do come down, there will be no mistaking who gets the glory. So God is present in power with his people. God is carrying out his plans and his purposes for his glory. And the last thing that I want to draw out from the text is that as long as they are aligned with God's plan in obedience, God's people will share in the benefits of his victory. Um, you may have noticed as Ryan was reading, I'm sure Ryan noticed, there's plenty of repetition in this passage, right? There's basically three cycles of, of repetition where God is commanding Joshua what he is supposed to tell the people, and then Joshua commands the people, and then there's the actual account of the events as they happened. Um, and the point, I think, of the way this is structured is to re reveal to us Israel's total compliance with God's will for them. Um, and additionally, a number of commentators point out that the night, what we believe to be the night before they started this campaign against Jericho was when they started celebrating the Passover feast, which would mean then that the seven days that they're walking around the city are the seven days of the Passover feast. And so their battle plan was wrapped up in religious observance. Their, their marching orders were worship. They were strong and courageous, but that strength and courage did not look like the strength and courage of human warriors. Rather, it was trust and obedience. It was faith, right? And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, which is his famous chapter on faith in which he references all of these sort of characters and events from the Old Testament where faith is displayed or exemplified. And in verse 30, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And look at the connection between verse 5 here, where God is describing the events that are going to happen, and then verse 20, where the events are actually described as they happen. All right, verse 5 says, this is God speaking. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, 
everyone straight before him. And then here's the description of what actually happened from verse 20. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him. It's basically verbatim up to that point. But verse 20 adds, and they captured the city. Israel obeys God's commands, aligning themselves to his will, and the result is that they captured the city. They acted in faith and they reaped the benefits or the rewards of God's victory. A theologian named David Firth, who wrote a commentary on the book of Joshua, in his commentary on this passage, he says this, the focus of this text is on how Yahweh summons his people to obedience through Joshua and how he grants them his gifts in their obedience. Put simply, God's people advance in God's purposes for them when they follow God's directions for them. You see, Joshua leads the people of Israel to a victory that God had already won for them. And you may think that, okay, if, if God appeared to me as this heavenly warrior and then told me exactly how things were going to go, then it would be easy for me, too, to be strong and courageous. It would be easy for me to obey and to have faith. But my friends, we have something so much better than that. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have proof beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is certainly with us. And in the Gospel of John's account of the Passion, the last words that Jesus spoke as he died on the cross for our sins, he says, It is finished. Our ultimate enemy has been fully and finally defeated on our behalf. In him, the battle is won. In him, the victory is secured. In him, the possession of our eternal inheritance with him is guaranteed. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1. In him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The victory is his, and he gets all the glory. But praise God that we who are joined to him in faith share in all of the benefits of everything that he's won. What an awesome God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all of your many promises to us in your word. We thank you that you are with us always, that you will never leave us or forsake us. 
Lord, we thank you that you are accomplishing your plans and your purposes and that you cannot be thwarted. And Father, we thank you that in Jesus, all of this is confirmed to us, sealed to us, guaranteed to us. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.